The rules we grew up with were never meant for us. It's time for a change. Welcome to Becoming Wild. This podcast will support you in untethering from conditioning, examining limiting beliefs around womanhood and value, and tapping into your innate power. Because when women embody our truest, wildest selves, we change much more than our own lives. We change the world. Hello. Welcome to episode seven of Becoming Wild. I'm your host, Emma Whittard, and I'm coming to you today from Pasadena, California. This is our first episode of three that will focus on the way we talk to ourselves, our inner voice. Most of us walk around with an inner dialogue running at all times. Generally, it's running on default, and it's often worrying about things. What's going to happen? What's already happened? How other people are perceiving us? And on and on. For most people, this voice is a critical one. It tells us that we aren't good enough, that we're getting things wrong, that people don't like us, and even that we're ugly and stupid. It tends to be pretty mean. Most of us assume that this inner dialogue is us. However, we are not our thoughts. Over the last month, we've learned how to examine our beliefs, become conscious of them, and change them if we want. We can do the same thing with that inner voice. Once we put some separation between ourselves and the voice of the inner critic, it's easier to begin to quiet it down. And then we can choose to hear from someone else, our inner wise woman. We'll meet her in the next episode, episode eight. So in our session today, Lou and I will start to recognize and characterize her inner critic. We'll figure out where she's come from and begin to work with her in preparation for working with Lou's inner wise woman next time. But before we get to that, let's see what wild question has popped into my inbox this week. Jay writes, Dear Emma, My husband and I are thinking of retiring in a few years. Beyond the financial planning, can you think of emotional preparations we should be thinking about? Thanks for writing in, Jay. This is a really big topic. I actually have a six-month one-to-one coaching program called Wild Spirit for people who would like to approach the second half of their life in an intentional way. We get into beliefs around aging and death, what you'd like your relationship to the rest of your life to be, and we put together a rest-of-life vision that is fulfilling for you. As we don't have six months to explore this here, I'll offer you one exercise that you could do. I suggest that you do this separately from your husband to start with, and then you can get together and compare notes. Close your eyes and imagine your ideal retirement. Take some time and imagine each decade. Sixties. 70s, 80s, and on. Imagine your absolute best version of how it would all play out. 
Then when you're deep in your imagination, notice how you're feeling. In your very best vision of your retirement, how would you like to feel? It might be peaceful, fulfilled, energetic, healthy, vibrant, happy, adventurous, any number of things. When you have your word, define it for yourself. What does this word mean to you in this context? Let's imagine that you've chosen vibrant. What does that mean to you? Then, when you have your meaning, write down five to ten things that you need to do before you retire, and maybe during retirement as well, in order to feel vibrant. These need to be five to ten things that are within your control. Some examples might be, look after my body so that it's strong and healthy to let me enjoy an active life. Have a clear financial plan in place so that I'm free to enjoy my retirement without money worries. Research exciting and inspirational things to do with my time. Build a friend network, three to five friends, who are also retiring and have similar values, wanting excitement, energy and enthusiasm. Go on an exciting adventure every year. When you've got your word and your list, compare notes with your husband. If your overall goals and actions are similar, then great. But what if his word is peaceful and his list is stay home, eat whatever I want, relax and read books? I invite you to talk together about where your wishes meet. Can you find some common ground? If he wants to read books and you want stimulation, could you agree to read one book a month together that is inspiring or teaches you something new so that you can discuss it together? That would be one example. If your interests can't converge, say he wants to stay home and you want to go on adventures, that might be the time to discuss how you can both achieve your goals separately. Can you agree that you'll take one adventure trip per year, for example, and go with friends? I hope this has given you some food for thought. Being intentional about your retirement will certainly help you to get the most out of it for you and your husband. And now on to our coaching. Okay, so the next month is dedicated to the way that you talk to yourself. Okay. Your inner voices. And I thought today we would start to get to know your inner critic a little bit. Okay. So the inner critic is is that voice that comes up that is the voice of lack. It's the, oh, there's never going to be enough such and such. It's impossible to do such and such. Mm-hmm. You're no good at this thing. So it's the voice that that talks in absolutes. It talks in black and white terms. It uses yeah. comparison. 
Does this voice sound familiar? It does. It definitely does. Hmm. How present would you say this voice is now for you? Um, I think it's very present, but I am, in terms of recognizing it, I'm not, I'm, I'm deaf to it. <laughs> right. Yes. And I think most of us are. I think we, we think that we are our thoughts mm-hmm. and we don't put the space between us and our thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. So the work that we did last month around beliefs began to put some space between you and your thoughts. It's, you know, it's the beginning of inquiry. And this is really, this is a similar thing. This is, this is looking at the way that we speak to ourselves and recognizing that actually we have a choice. But in order to make a choice, we need to be conscious of how we speak to ourselves. Yeah. Okay. So let's start by thinking about the kind of things that this voice says. What are the kind of negative self-talk that you actually experience? Um, the uh, big one that's come up for me lately that I actually have noticed is that I'll never be able to make everyone happy, especially Mm -hmm. my kids Mm -hmm. that I won't, I won't ever make my kids happy. A lot of times my voice is my inner critic is I've realized recently it's more of a worry wart than I thought it was Mm -hmm. because both my mom and dad uh, had strong worry, have strong worry tendencies. My mom's gotten hers a little bit more under control. Um, and I always thought, no, I don't do that because I recognized it in them. And so of course I'm not going to do that because it's horrible. (laughs) (laughs) I have really realized in the last year, maybe as I start down this path of transitioning into my own business, uh, the trap of falling into a worry spiral Mm. and the voice is like, Oh, well, you know, this is, this is never going to work. And, you know, yeah, you have this great goal right now. You're doing all the things, but it's not going to work. And, and then you won't be able to support your family and they won't be able to have all the things that they want. And so they'll be unhappy and they'll dislike you for it. And they'll end up not respecting you for mm-hmm. going out and doing your thing. Um, so it's like this presupposition of, I already know how this is going to end up. Yes. I don't need any data. I don't need any evidence. I already know what's going to happen. Okay. So let's, let's start to give this voice a bit of a character. Okay. So the reason that we do this is it helps you to identify it when it comes up. Mm -hmm. And it helps to put a little bit of space between you and the voice. Yeah. 
because in the space you then have some choice. And next session, we're going to meet your inner mentor. Okay. The idea being that if we can recognize when the critic comes up, we can say, okay, it's the critic. Thanks. But I actually want to hear from the mentor today. Thank you very Mm -hmm. much. Yeah. Okay. So let's imagine that, that you're, working for one of the studios you're creating a character for a movie or a tv show or an an animation and let's create a character for this inner critic how does it sound does it have a sort of masculine voice or a feminine voice in your imagination Uh, I think feminine okay and you say you recognize that you get it to some degree from your parents can you Can you imagine a character for this voice? Um, I think she is, it's funny, I think she's a nasty old hag. Uh Uh-huh. But I say that fully recognizing that, like, you know, as I'm post-menopausal and am... I am potentially growing into a nasty old hag. So what's the differentiation here? <laughs> yes. Yes. Haggitude. We're all, we're aiming yeah. for some haggitude, right? Me too. Yeah. Yeah. So what does she look like? Um, yeah, I would say she's, she's hunched over. Mm-hmm. She's uh long pointy nose Mm -hmm. she's uh uh, long bony fingers Mm -hmm. to you know the better to point with yes (laughs) you'll never be able to do this yes with kind of a sneer awesome yes i'm picturing the the witch from snow white from snow white yep Yep. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Would you like to give her a name? Hmm. Um, how about the hag? Mm-hmm. The hag. Okay, great. Okay. Awesome. So you've told me a little bit about some of the situations where she might come up. If you can try and try and think about all the types of situations where where she might come up. So you've talked about parenting. Mm-hmm. You've talked about your new business. Uh huh. Where else might she come up? Um. Well, I'm looking at some journaling that I did, and so one of the things that came up was in work meetings, um, and speaking up sometimes. Sometimes I'm very, I feel this like generous, I'm going to ask all my questions because I know that if I have this question, other people have these questions too. Yeah. So sometimes it's this very, like I, I do it purposefully to be generous to the other people in the room. And I think the reason I do that sometimes is because also sometimes I recognize myself sitting there like, I'm the only one not getting this. 
this mm. is a stupid question. Everybody else knows this. Mm-hmm. You know, if I ask this question, I'm obviously the odd man out that doesn't know what's going on. Um, yeah, I'm going to appear to not know what's going on. And that that's like really something very hard for me to be perceived as not smart or not know what's going on. Yeah. So this comes up for people a lot, the the speaking up in meetings. It's an absolute classic in a critic situation. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. How about appearance? And I ask this because for women, this is often one of the places that she rears her head. Um, yeah, I think she tells me that, um, that my body type is different from the standard, that I can't wear the normal clothes that everybody else does, that I don't look good in the clothes that everybody else looks good in. Um, when I stand in front of the mirror and look at myself, I... I like what I see. I mean, definitely there's times when I'm like, oh man, I look tired or, you know, my hair styled that way is not my favorite. But for the most part, when I look at myself in the mirror, I appreciate myself. Yeah. And funnily enough, I, it's easier for me to like what I see when I'm naked than when I have clothes on. Maybe it is because of this, this sense that, you know, I'm six foot tall and it's mostly leg mm-hmm. um, and, and I've always been very tall. And mm-hmm. um, when I was a teenager and younger, it was very uncomfortable. Um, I appreciate it now, but I've grown up feeling and thinking and talking to myself like I'm bigger than everyone and an odd outcast for that. I think there's also a critical voice in my head that tells me that I'm not good at dressing myself, designing my space or um, like these kind of aesthetic things that I'm, I'm not good at it. Yeah. So some of the ways to notice this voice, it speaks in definitives. Yeah. So you said things like, um, I'll never be mm-hmm. able to make anyone happy. Yeah. Um, the business is never going to work. Yeah. It's a clear yes or no, mm-hmm. right? You won't be able to support your family. You don't yeah. look good. Yeah. You're not good at designing a space yeah so noticing those language patterns can help to notice when the critic is present Mm -hmm. so we normally develop this inner critic from a really really early age yeah um and you've already identified that that yours has come at least to some extent from your parents Mm -hmm. can you imagine how young you might have been when the critical voice first came into play? Um, 
I have a feeling it came into play when I was a baby because Mm -hmm. my parents did not live or follow a kind of standard expected uh, way of life. They were, they were hippies. They didn't finish college. They didn't have careers when they had me. And my, especially my dad's parents were very, um, high expectations for outer appearances of success. Mm. Mm. And I think that they were very vocally, very vocally critical Mm. of, of my parents, of my dad, especially. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I have a feeling that that, that may have happened in front of me, but even if it wasn't in front of me, it certainly seeped into my um, understanding of my family. From this the family has been, I mean, as as much as they have been critical, they've also been supportive. <laughs> but it's, you know... It's sometimes it could it could be seen as um, supportive to live up to their standards that they're mm-hmm. very they're critical of somebody not living up to their standards. So they're going to support that person to reach that standard. Right. Yes, exactly. It's sort of conditional support. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. OK. So. We develop these voices. We we always have the best of intentions for ourselves. So when we're kids, we develop coping mechanisms yeah. in order to cope in the environment that we're in. Mm-hmm. And our inner critic is one of those coping mechanisms. Yeah. So knowing that, what do you think the hag was protecting you from think about how you would have been thinking as a child what do you think she was there to protect you from I think she was there to help me with belonging Mm -hmm. because my uh my parents split when I was two and I went with my mom and we moved around a bunch and I would go back to visit my dad and my grandparents and every different place was a different environment mm-hmm. from living out in rural Illinois on a farm to very preppy, well-to-do St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And so having to navigate all these spaces I think she wanted me to be safe in all of these spaces and belong in all of these spaces. So I had to dress and behave in certain ways in order to belong in these spaces. Yeah. Yeah. She helped you conform Mm -hmm. in order to belong. Yeah. Yeah. So she was doing her best. Yeah. At the time. 
Okay, great. So if you think now about the list of situations where she comes up, parenting, new business, in work meetings, clothes, style. For each of those situations, what is the overriding emotion that you feel when the critic is present? And then it might be different for each one. Have a think for a moment about what those emotions might be. Hmm. I mean, when I think about like the work meetings, it's definitely a sense of belonging. Um, but the emotion behind it, I think, is fear that I won't that I won't belong, that I'll be outcast, mm-hmm. that I'll be the yeah. This is it for for body stuff too. That that I'll be so different. That I won't fit in. That I won't belong. Mm. Yeah. Which is funny because I mean I. I am very. Fiercely proud of being very authentic. And that. That fear of not belonging. I doesn't stop me from being authentic, but it does keep me from maybe playing as full out as I could. Yeah. Yeah, I, it is. It is such a valid way to feel as well. We are literally wired yeah for belonging we know this right so our number one driver is safety and number two is belonging and it's really because belonging equals safety yeah if we're in a community we're not going to starve to death yeah Um, if we're out on our own as hunter gatherers as we were for thousands and thousands and thousands of years you know, you're much less likely to survive if you're on your own than, than you are if you're in a group. Yeah. So the fear of not belonging, even when intellectually we are happy not to belong. Yeah. There's still this acknowledgement on an on an unconscious level that that it's unsafe. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's entirely understandable. Okay. Is it the same fear when you think about the new business and parenting? Is it the same emotion? Is it fear? Um, I mean, yeah, with the business, yes, fear. Definitely fear of, yeah, not being able to do it, not being able to survive. <sighs> Um, with parenting, um, I think it's fear there too, that, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that my kids won't love me, (laughs) 
if I don't, if I don't make them happy, they won't love me. Mm. Uh, Let's just talk about the parenting fear for a moment. Okay. And it's sort of related to another one. You said the hag says to you, my kids won't love me if I don't make them happy. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll never be able to make anyone happy. Yeah. Making people happy. Let's just examine that for a moment. Yeah. Do you on an intellectual level believe that you can make people happy? No. <laughs> right. Right. So going back, and we've ta- I'm sure we've talked about this before, at least I think we have, the principle of the four things that you can control. Remind me. So you can, so you can only ever control four things, and you can always control these four things. You can control what you believe, how you feel, how you think, and what you do in this present moment. Right. So you have control of those things, whether you're in a prison cell or you're president of the United States, and you have no control of anything outside of those things. So you can't control what anybody else believes feels, thinks, or does. And you can't control the past or the future. So when you pin your belonging story and the, and the idea of your kids loving you to making them happy, you're pinning it to something that you will never, ever be able to control. Yeah. I, I understand that I can't control it. But, like, the idea that, I don't know, I just get lost in, I get lost in worry. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm getting there because it's a future worry. A worry about in the future because of something, because of the way that I have lived my life. They won't love me. Right. And I understand that I don't have control of how they feel. But what if that's true? (laughs) What if they don't? (laughs) What if they don't? Why would I doubt that? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So it's a story that you're telling yourself. Yeah. And it's a story about the future. So it's a story, again, the future is not in your control. Yeah. Yeah. But today is, so then I'm left feeling like I have to do everything in my power today to make them happy. So that they will love you. Yes. Right. (laughs) So, crazy. so so what if the let's play with this what if the opposite were true what would the opposite belief be the opposite belief would be that they would love me now and forever no matter what i did right right 
How could that be true? Um, well, <laughs> someday they, they won't be teenagers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can be true right now, too. I just had a conversation with Calvin where he walked away mad because I wouldn't say yes to giving him a car right now. And then he came back and we had a conversation and we ended it very lovingly. So it could be true right now, right here. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I would hazard a guess based on statistics that your kids love you right now. <laughs> I think you're right. I don't know why this is so, so triggering for me right now. Mm -hmm. Well, you're in the teenage phase, right? Yeah. And teenagers, their job is to push back against their parents. It's their job to separate yeah. from their parents. When, yeah. they're, when they're challenging us, and I say us, mine's only 11, but she's definitely begun this process. Yeah. When they're challenging us, they're doing their jobs as teenagers. Yeah. And my, I mean, my daughter is 16. I mean, it's pretty much hopefully as bad as it's going to get. Yeah. It's just like, it's also like at this age, you, you start to realize how little time you have left with them in your everyday life. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so the urgency feels bigger. Yeah. Yeah. And how would you be approaching things if you knew viscerally in your body that no matter what they say and no matter what they do and no matter what you say and no matter what you do, they love you? I could approach things with more fun and joy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for one thing. And more patience and understanding and just a lot less uh suffering on my side yeah yeah so this is a belief yeah right you have to make my kids happy so that they love me yeah so you get to choose to change it if you would like to okay okay I will choose to change it. <laughs> what would you like to change it to? I don't have to make my kids happy. Because? Because they make themselves happy. Mm -hmm. Yes. And what's your belief about love and your children? <sighs> I mean... I want them to be free to love who and where they want. Mm -hmm. I don't, I want them to love me, but I also don't want to force that on them. Which you can't. Right. So if the current belief is I need to do something 
in order for my children to love me yeah what would the opposite belief be the opposite belief would be I do not have to do something for my children to love me and I can't control who they love and how they love great I would write that down if you haven't already okay I had this brilliant therapist, couples therapist once, um, and he, uh, and we were talking about parenting and kids, and I can't remember how it came up, but he said, children, particularly their mothers, you can be the worst mother in the world. And your and your children are still going to love you. It's they're just programmed that way. Right. They might not like your behavior. They might not like your actions. They might be angry with you. They might disapprove as they get older. But the love is just there. Yeah. And it gives you a very big pass on. On a lot of behavior. And I never forgot that he said that. I thought it was really interesting. So I can really see that. And if I don't have to do anything for them to love me, it just leaves so much more space. Yeah. Yes. And and as a parent, if we talk about demonstrating how we want our kids to live. If you would like them to believe that they're inherently lovable yeah, without having to do anything to quote unquote earn it, yeah, then you get the opportunity to demonstrate that to them. Yeah, totally. If you believe you're inherently lovable, yeah, you show them that that's possible. Yeah. Which I do. I mean, I, I do believe that's how love works. Mm-hmm. but yeah I think this is really tied into that like I, it's like I forgot that yeah that I I don't have to make them happy to make them love me <laughs> no you can do things and they may choose not to like you for them yeah and they'll still love you yeah it's quite liberating to be able to say to somebody, I really don't like you right now, but I love you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love you, but I'm really angry with you and I'm annoyed with you and I don't like you. Go away. (laughs) Bye. Love you. (laughs) You know, so helping in your own mind to separate love from behaviors. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was a bit of a sidebar, but yes. I think it was a, I think it was an important one to I Yeah. I didn't want to just ignore it. Okay, thank you. Okay. So so in the case of the critic, the overriding emotion seems to be fear. Yeah. Is that correct? I think so. Okay. So this is going to sound strange. There's a point to this. 
I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. So, Lou, I would like to create some fear in my life. <laughs> and I hear you're actually quite an expert at this. Can you can you walk me through how to create fear in my life? <sighs> This is so much easier to coach than to be coached. <laughs> Easy for you to say, Emma. <laughs> okay. You want to create some fear in your life and you want me to tell you how to do it. Yes. <clears throat> okay. Well, uh, first you would want to set your sights on something big and... Mm -hmm risky mm -hmm. and um and then you would want to focus on all the things that could go wrong mm -hmm. and look for all of that data okay great so is that how you determine that it's risky by looking at data to support that? Uh, not necessarily looking at data, but like following the step-by-step -step path in my, in my mind of this is going to go wrong and then this is going to go wrong. And then all the consequences that will happen from even just from the first thing not being achieved or completed. Awesome. Okay. So what happens before I set my sights on something big and risky? What's the step before that? Um, uh, recognizing dissatisfaction in your current situation. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have to recognize dissatisfaction. Okay. What's the step before recognizing dissatisfaction? Uh, observing where you are. Observe where I am. Okay. So I observe where I am. I recognize dissatisfaction. I set my sights on something bigger, risky, and I focus on all the ways that it could go wrong. Yeah. Where does the fear begin in that process? Hmm. I think the fear begins in the step where you recognize dissatisfaction okay so does the recognizing of the dissatisfaction create fear uh i think so i think it's like that's where you're you're <clears throat> you're recognizing that you haven't lived up to potential or mm -hmm. You've made a a wrong choice. Mm -hmm. It could also be 
you're recognizing the dissatisfaction in comparison to, you know, other people, other things. Okay. And so you, that's where the fear starts to, the fear that you're not living up to expectations or potential, like I said. Okay. Okay, great. So it sounds like it's the story I tell myself about the dissatisfaction that, that creates the fear. So I can't just be dissatisfied and go, oh, this doesn't really suit me anymore. I'm going to go do something else. I need to feel yeah. like it's my fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. So I need to make it my fault, my fault in order to feel the fear. Okay. So I recognize dissatisfaction and make it my fault. Yeah. And then the fear begins. Awesome. Okay. So let's talk about that. Is it possible to be dissatisfied with something and it not be your fault? Um, not if I'm responsible for my own experience i okay are you responsible for your own experience are you responsible for the things that happen to you let's let's imagine you're in a restaurant and you've ordered a steak and mm. sorry well i mean i don't think i'm responsible for the things that happen to me but to my experience of them right so you're relationship to them mm -hmm. my yeah. thoughts feelings beliefs about what's going on what i can control right so is dissatisfaction in itself a problem uh maybe so I was going with the steak analogy because, so let's let's stick with the steak analogy for a moment. Okay. okay. So you're in a restaurant, you've ordered a steak, it arrives and it's cold. Mm -hmm. Your response is dissatisfaction. Uh -huh. Is it a problem to have that response? No, not in that situation. Okay. Exactly. The dissatisfaction... Uh, alerts you to the fact that you would like something to be different. Right. Right. So this is why I say, is dissatisfaction your fault? I would argue that dissatisfaction is purely a, an indicator that you would like something to be different. Okay. Yeah, I can accept that. In the fear scenario, in order to create fear from my dissatisfaction, I have to make it my fault. Yeah. It's my fault for ordering the steak. It's my fault for coming to this restaurant. It's a crappy restaurant. I should have known. Yep. Yeah. Right? It's a seafood restaurant. I shouldn't have ordered the steak. It's my fault. Yep. Yep. Totally. Right? That's would... the bit that creates the fear. Yes. Right. Right. 
So I think I think we found the story that creates the fear, the underlying inner critic story. And it's back to, yeah, expect expectations. It was interesting that you used that word. I haven't lived up to potential. I've made the wrong choice. Uh-huh. And if we go back to what you were saying about your father's family. Yeah. Yeah. We get these patterns. Yeah, totally. Right. So again, this is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to choose a different response to satisfaction. Okay. Does that make any sense? It does make sense. Keep going. (laughs) The next time you feel dissatisfied about something, you have an opportunity to use it as a prompt that you would like something to be different. Take the judgment out of it. Let's go back to what I think we were really talking about, which was work. Mm -hmm. I was dissatisfied in my corporate job. Yeah. Right. Dissatisfaction is a clue that you would like something to be different. Yeah. When you layer on ways to make it your own fault. Oh, it's my fault that I'm not satisfied in my corporate job. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There must be something wrong with me. Yeah. Rather than intellectually, you've told me you're in a corporate environment and the work that you've been doing around coach training, etc., has moved you further and further away from a patriarchal environment. Yeah. So when you take the judgment out of it, what are the reasons that you were dissatisfied at work? Yeah, I'm not able to bring my full self in terms of the work that I do. I'm not able to do what I want to do. I have to do what other people tell me to do. Great. Yeah, exactly. So you have an invitation to look at dissatisfaction differently and use it as a clue to say, oh, what would I like to be different? And take the judgment out of it. But what if the dissatisfaction is with, like, I'm just wondering if I'm using it to judge other people too. Great. Tell me more about that. Like dissatisfaction at home Mm -hmm. and with other people's stepping up to do chores. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm yep. dissatisfied with how the household is running. Yeah. But I don't want to take on responsibility for that. Um, and I, that's just kind of where it stops for me. <laughs> so <Yeah>. then what? <laughs> yeah. So in this case, you're dissatisfied with how the household is running. So it's your clue that you would like something to be different. Yeah. So when we take the judgment out of it, the judgment is I'd like, if you were putting the judgment in, you'd say, I want somebody else to be different or I want me to be different. This means somebody needs to change who Mm -hmm. they are, right? 
that's not going to happen. So I'm dissatisfied with how my house is running. I want something to be different. That my go-to for that is what can I change about myself? Right. So if we're taking the judgment out and we're saying, I haven't done anything wrong here. Yeah. And everybody else in the house is exactly who they are. And that is not going to change. So then you can start to look at the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. I am dealing with these, this set of personalities in this house. None of us is going to change knowing that what systems and processes do I need to put in place to change mm-hmm. the way the house is running that will suit yeah. me better. Okay. Do you see the difference with that? I do. And I, I see where I, I go toward what do I need to change about myself or these people as opposed to what do we need to change about the systems or processes? Yeah. So this is accepting everybody for who they are in order to be able to then deal with the reality of that. Yeah. 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 So when you can look at dissatisfaction as a clue Mm -hmm. that you want something to change, it becomes useful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to the hag. Okay. Knowing that you created this inner voice for yourself at a very, very early age and that you did it with the best of intentions, you know, she had great intentions for you. She wanted you to belong. Yeah. She wanted to help you to belong. What would you like to do with her now? I mean, she's, she's been there for so long. I don't want to, I don't want to throw her out with the dishwater. Mm -hmm. No, definitely not. I think, I think we always need to be kind and compassionate towards our inner voices. Yeah. What would be the kind and compassionate thing to do with her at this point in your life? How about if we allow her to uh, go into retirement? <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. And allow her to be um, an independent contractor mm-hmm. when um, dissatisfaction arises. Mm-hmm. I almost can see her now in a more in a more friendly way and in a more like a somebody, you know, like an accountability partner. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, you can give her a new job. Yeah, who's gonna be like poking you, you know, like mm-hmm. hey, not not necessarily all of a sudden all sunshine and butterflies but 
um, the reminder without the critical reminder. Yeah, yeah exactly. Can reprogram her a little bit. Give her yeah. a job. She can keep her long bony fingers and poke me mm-hmm. with, with a sparkle, a twinkle in her eye. Lovely. <laughs> that twinkle makes all the difference. Yeah. 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 Great. And next time we'll meet your inner mentor. So when she does poke you with her long bony fingers and that twinkle in her eye, it could also be an invitation to bring in the mentor. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what are you going to take away from our session today? Um, I'm taking away some relief for sure. The, the little sidetrack into the thing with my kids definitely feels like a relief. Um, and, and also, um, just a little like settled, I guess having having looked at this stuff so deeply and recognizing it's just you know bringing to the surface the things that are quietly under the surface yeah feels uh settling as as the opposite of unsettled yeah fantastic okay that's it for the show Becoming Wild is a podcast written and produced by me, Emma Whittard. Special thanks go to Andrea Lida Wilborn, Sean Dennis, Jill Smolin, and Dean and De Silva. You can get more information about the show and other ways to experience my work at www.emmawittard.com. Please subscribe to Becoming Wild on your favorite podcast app and give us lots of lovely stars. It will make a huge difference to the discoverability of the show. If you'd like more direct coaching from me, please consider joining my Wild Woman community, where I post new content every few days and coach in the comments. And we have live coaching sessions every Friday. Or contact me to explore one-to-one coaching. If you have a question about what we covered today, or anything else you'd like some support over, you can email me at info at subject line wild questions, and I might just respond on the show. You'll be anonymous, of course. All of this information is in the show notes. Thank you for listening. You matter. What you do matters. And when a woman truly knows that, she changes the world. See you next time on Becoming Wild.